Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout, uh, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning needing an encounter with Jesus. God, we are coming into this building carrying different things in our lives, different worries, different weights, different concerns, different struggles. But our confession together as a family is that you are what we need. And so we ask Jesus that As we open up your word this morning, that you would open up our hearts and that you would meet us in this place, that you would draw us close to you. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would give us ears to hear what he wants to say to his church this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been a follower of Jesus for long enough, you'll likely be able to relate to where Abram and Sarai were at at this point in their life. They have been living in this tension of having been called by God and given these incredible promises, yet are consistently confronted by their own limitations to faithfully persevere and wait faithfully on God. Most of us We began our life of faith with great expectations, lots of enthusiasm. We were full of energy. We were idealistic about what following Jesus would look like in our lives. We were enthusiastic about obedience. We discovered 
this great sense of meaning for our life and hope. And we were growing in the knowledge of God and passionate about his mission. But for some of us, as years have come and gone, many of the things you hoped for haven't come to pass in the way that you expected or wanted. And God doesn't feel so close anymore. You've been disappointed with how you've responded to trials and testing in your life. Where you were once so eager to say yes to God in every situation. It just feels more complicated now. You'd imagine that you would be so much further along in your life with God than where you find yourself today. Maybe some of you can relate to that. I know all of us in this room who have walked with God for long enough have been confronted with the limitations of our own power and perseverance. And the life of Abram and Sarai, it paints a vivid picture for us of what it actually looks like to take the promises of God into real life. Abram and Sarai, they were a husband and wife who left everything that was comfortable and safe and familiar to follow the call of a God they hardly knew at all, to go to a land that they'd never been. And God made incredible promises to Abram, promises that he would be a great nation, promised him a land, promised that he would be a blessing. And so in faith, they follow this God, they go. We know that at the time of this call, Abram was 75 years old, and Sarai was 65 years old. We know that Sarai was incredibly beautiful, but we learn that she is also unable to have children. And we've been learning over the past several weeks that this has been a struggle for Abram and Sarah to follow God in this call. Pretty early on in their journey, you remember a few weeks ago, a famine strikes the land, and out of fear, Abram deviates and decides to head to Egypt for help. And then again, out of fear, he worries that because his wife is beautiful, men are going to start checking out his wife and try to kill him to take her. And so he tells his wife, Sarai, to say that she is his sister. And she goes along with it. And Sarai doesn't only grab the attention of just any man. She grabs the attention of Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh takes Sarai and makes her his wife and gives Abram a bunch of gifts in return, livestock and a bunch of servants. No doubt, one of those servants is a woman named Hagar. But God quickly intervenes and he wants to put a stop to this mess that Abram had made. He sends plagues into Egypt and over Pharaoh's family. And as soon as Pharaoh finds out what had happened. He, he gives Sarai back to Abram with a strong rebuke and sends him away. Failure number one. Then last week in chapter 16, 10 years after their initial call from God, they still have no child. And Sarai this time comes up with a solution And she offers her servant Hagar to Abram to have sex with and have a child through. And Abram agrees. 
and gives birth to a son named Ishmael. But this wasn't God's way. One commentator writes, Abram and Sarai were willing to obey God and wait on the promises of God as long as it fit within their circumstances and didn't delay the gratification of their desires. And this not only impacted the way that Abram and Sarah were experiencing the blessing, it impacted everyone around them. Abram and Sarai have been failing. They're discouraged. Something was missing for them. Abram and Sarai needed a new way of experiencing life with God. And that's my prayer for us today. For any of you who are coming into this place and find yourself discouraged, weary, weak, on the other side of failure, I want you to see in this passage how God comes to people who show themselves to be weak. How does he come? We see that God meets us in our weakness with an invitation to go somewhere deeper with him. See, God isn't just taking Abraham and Sarah somewhere geographically. He's taking them somewhere in their inner life. God wants to bring change to Abram. God has more for Abram than what he has been experiencing. He needed a new perspective. Abram needed a new way of seeing God. And it's easy to miss this, but in verse 1, God reveals himself to Abram in a new way. In verse 1, when, when God says, I am God Almighty, that is the word El Shaddai. For the first time in Scripture, God is using this title and this name to refer to himself. El Shaddai is translated in English as God Almighty. It's literally the God of the mountains. And for ancient Israel, this spoke of God as being all-sufficient. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. God is saying to Abram, I'm not like these other gods that you grew up bowing to, Abram. I am El Shaddai. The earth that you're standing on, I made that. The mountains that you see in the distance, I put them there. Nothing was made apart from me. And not only am I powerful, but I am all-sufficient. This is who I am, Abram. In Abram's weakness, God comes to him with power and perspective. God doesn't come to him with an intellectual argument. He could have just laid out all these explanations and reasons and a theological treatise on who he is. But he doesn't show up that way. He comes in an encounter. And we're told that Abram falls on his face in reverence. God is pushing past any intellectual or emotional barriers that they had with an invitation to go deeper. Abram needed a new way of seeing God. He also needed a new way of seeing himself. In, chapter, in verse uh, 5, God changes Abram's name. This is preacher's favorite part of the book of Genesis because we get to start calling him Abraham. In verse 5, he says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
Abraham means father of multitudes. Names in the ancient world had much more meaning than they do in our culture today. They weren't just a moniker. They they spoke of someone's identity. You see, Abraham's experience didn't align with his new name. But God wanted him to see how he thinks of him. God then intensifies the promises he's made to Abram. In verse 6, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. That's new. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God begins using this, this term everlasting as he's describing these promises. Three times in this passage, he uses that word everlasting, everlasting. He's intensifying the promises that he's made to Abram. Not only am I going to give you descendants, Abraham, but kings are going to come from you. Not only am I giving you a land, but an everlasting home with my presence. Not only will you be a great nation, but you'll be the father of multitudes. And then he says something so simple, yet so profound. He says, I will be God to you. God comes to Abraham after all the failure in his weakness to say, I want to be your God, Abraham. I want you to know me. See, Abraham already believed God, but there was something more that he needed. He needed a deeper relationship to sustain him. And this is a vital part of enduring after failure. It had been 24 years at this point for Abram and Sarah, waiting on God's promises to come to pass, waiting for a child. 24 years, waiting in obscurity, trying to do God's thing their way and in their timing. Something was missing for them. And so God is inviting Abraham into a deeper relationship. There's this invitation to intimacy with God. God is saying, Abraham, I want you to come closer. Step in deeper. The covenant that I have given to you creates intimacy between us. There is something that you are missing, Abraham. And it's this relationship. See, whatever you go through in life, God will meet you there with an opportunity to go somewhere with him. In your inner life. A place that you haven't been before. There's always more of God to be discovered for us. God has way more for us than we are often ready to receive. But we wonder, where is he taking me? Where will God take me? What is God doing in my life? What is he going to ask of me? What is he going to call me to leave behind? Can I do it? Will I be me on the other side of it? I know when I was a new Christian, one of the things that used to kind of scare me about giving my whole life over to Jesus was... I didn't want him to make me weirder than I already was. I had met a lot of kooky Christians. 
Not since I moved here. I haven't met any kooky Christians. But listen, wherever God is taking you, he doesn't want to take you there to destroy you. He wants to take you there to deliver you. And the question is, are we willing to go where he's taking us? Are we willing to embrace what he is doing in us? You see, our ability to keep going when life or our own failures knocks us down, it isn't found in trying to get back to some idealistic vision or memory of what life with God should look like or somewhere we used to be in our life. It's found in being fully present to God and allowing him to make whole all the broken pieces of us. God is inviting Abraham to go somewhere with him. And God is inviting us to go somewhere. And God gives clarity as we move toward him in faith. No doubt, Abraham wanted more clarity. When we feel stuck and when we feel discouraged in our life, isn't that what we want? We want clarity. We want revelation. We want answers. We want results. But what if the relationship is more important than results? What if instead of a change of circumstances, God wants to change you? What if greater clarity only comes as we move toward God in trust and obedience and a deeper commitment? And that's what God is teaching Abraham. God begins to call Abraham to make responses to the covenant that he has made with them. Up to this point, the covenant has been unilateral. God has told Abraham, this is what I'm going to do through you. But now he's calling Abraham to make responses to that. And we see this pattern in the life of Abraham where over time, God is revealing more and more of who he is to Abraham as Abraham moves toward him in faith. God reveals as Abraham responds. And I want you to notice how God calls Abraham to respond on the other side of failure. He says in verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me. To walk before me means to orient one's entire life around God's promise, his presence, and his demands. That's what it means to walk before God. It's this idea that every step we take, we take in reference to God. It doesn't mean walk out in front of me. It doesn't mean walk behind me. It means walk with me. Be with me. It's a new way of being. It's a kind of life. It's more than doing. It's a being that sustains the doing. The way is the same as the destination. Being with God. He says, walk before me, Abraham, and be blameless. Now, when we heard this word, when we hear this word blameless, we automatically think of perfect. We think of being sinless. Be blameless. But blameless doesn't mean perfect. It's the Hebrew word tamim, and it speaks of 
completion or being wholehearted. Abraham has been half-hearted in his responsiveness to God up to this point. He was halfway in and halfway out with God. And we see that in Abraham's response to God. In verse 3, he falls on his face in worship. And then a little later on in this chapter, he falls on his face again, only this time laughing in disbelief at God's promises. Abraham had a divided heart. He was part worshiper and part skeptic, part devoted and part cynical. He had a complicated heart, like us. We start this life as a follower of Jesus, full of great promises, and worship is our first response to everything, and prayer. And then we get discouraged along the way as we struggle with our flesh over the years. We're weaker than we want to be. We fail tests. We respond poorly to trials. We're not where we thought we would be at this point in our lives. And we become disappointed with ourselves and at times disappointed with God. And we can become cynical. Church, listen. If we're not careful, our cynicism can completely overshadow our worship. In our families, with our kids, with our spouses, in our friendships, in ministry, Oh boy, big time in ministry. Pastors can be some of the most cynical people in the church. And it makes sense. Hurt people hurt people, right? Dealing with betrayal, the feelings of investing in somebody for months and months and years, only to have them leave the church and never sit down with you beforehand and explain to you why. It's hard. It's not digging ditches hard, but it's an emotional strain. It's been said that if you scratch them, inside every cynical person, there is a disappointed idealist. We have to acknowledge and root out the seeds of cynicism that can begin to grow in our hearts as Christians. And we can easily disguise our cynicism. We disguise it behind a mask that we call wisdom. The late night talk show host Stephen Colbert once said this about cynicism. He said, cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it is the farthest thing from it. Because critics don't learn anything. Because cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. Cynics always say no. But saying yes begins things. Saying yes is how things grow. Saying yes leads to knowledge. Yes is for the living. So for as long as you have the strength to, say yes. Now let me make that quote a little more biblical. Say yes to God. Don't stop saying yes to God. Wherever it is that he's taking you in your inner life, whatever it is that he is doing in you, don't stop saying yes to him. And listen, your idealistic yeses when you were a new Christian, those weren't wrong. 
They were just untested yeses. The yeses are much more meaningful now. Being wholehearted means saying yes to whatever God is doing in us. It's to give God our whole self, to go deeper with God. And to go deeper with Him, we have to be willing to let Him into the parts of us that we are most ashamed of. But it's that yes that will define every other yes in our lives. It means putting God first. You see, the biggest temptation isn't to reject God outright. It's to make him secondary. It's to use him as an instrument for your purposes. But God will not take second place in your life. The King of Kings is overqualified to merely be a means to our end. Being wholehearted means closing the gap between Jesus and our anxieties and our fears and our discouragements. Running to him instead of running away from him. Not holding back. Maybe God feels so far away because you've been trying to follow him at a distance. God will become much clearer to us as we move toward him in faith. Eric Lydell once said, you will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. You can't experience the wholeness Jesus wants to bring to you if you only give him a part of you. God is inviting Abraham into this deeper relationship, and he's giving him clarity, but that clarity comes with a call to respond. Now, this is the part you've all been waiting for, circumcision. (laughs) Thank you, Adam. God gives Abraham the sign of the covenant that he must keep. Look again at verses 9 through 11. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Really, God? What's wrong with another rainbow? Now, circumcision was not a new practice. Circumcision was already being practiced in the ancient world long before this. But God gives it a new meaning for Abraham. And not only for his descendants, but also for his dependents. He says, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, any foreigner, he who is born of your house or bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, commenting on this passage, said, Belonging to this strange community and trusting in this scandalous promise requires a mark of distinctiveness. It's so interesting to me. God calls Abraham 
to forever mark the part of his body that was used to mistrust him 13 years prior. Now, I don't know what to make of that. I just said it was interesting. You make your own application. What we see God doing here is he's, he's fulfilling his promises to make Abraham a great nation. Circumcision wasn't just for Abraham. It was for all of his descendants, all who would come into this new covenant community that God was forming. The people of God are growing. It's expanding. See, as Christians, we are living under the new covenant. The book of Hebrews tells us a better covenant. Under the new covenant, circumcision is reframed as a matter of the heart. But like circumcision, we also have signs of the covenant that Jesus calls us to keep and practice. We have communion that we take every Sunday morning together, and we have baptism. And the connection between circumcision and baptism is a distinct connection. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Unlike circumcision, the sign of baptism is commanded for both men and women. But like circumcision, baptism indicates a belonging to the covenant community of Jesus. It marks us as an indication that we have been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Like the mark of circumcision, our baptism is something that we are constantly to be reminded of. It's something that we are always to be looking back on as a milestone, as a marker in our life when we made a public declaration before God and his people that we are going to follow Jesus. Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12 Paul writes, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Like circumcision, baptism symbolizes entrance into a new life. Entrance into a new loyalty and a new family. Through circumcision, God is expanding Abraham's community. By grace, he is creating a covenant community and calling them to this radical commitment. Listen, going deeper with God means going deeper with God's covenant people. For us, to go deeper with Jesus means putting down roots in a community of faith. Putting down relational roots. In my 20 years of pastoral counseling, the most common theme in people who are struggling with loneliness, apathy, or habitual sin is they've been trying to follow Jesus apart from community. They either have no support system, and beside a few surface-level friendships with people in the church, they lack deep, meaningful, and committed relationships with other Christians. It's evident in the amount of loneliness and isolation that people feel. Many people in the church will consistently say they feel like God is far away, 
and they feel stagnant in their faith. We were made for community. We long for it. The entertainment industry knows this well. That's why some of the most popular sitcoms in all of history are about a group of friendships who are doing life together every single day. Shows like Friends and Seinfeld. They, they scratch us where we itch because innately we feel what the Bible says is true. That we were made for deep, real, life-on-life connection with one another. And this is God's design. God is a relational being in his essence. He is triune. He is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God himself exists in community. And the Bible says that we have been created in his image. In fact, we see that the very first problem ever mentioned in the Bible is a human being without a relationship. And so God creates a community. But this type of commitment to a community isn't easy. We live in a very non-committal culture. People do not like to feel locked in to anything. People used to get a job and stay there until they retired. It was common for people 50 years ago to be born somewhere and stay there forever. People used to get married and stay married. People used to stay in the same church from their baptism to their funeral. Now, our culture has changed, but whether it's friendships, a marriage, or a church community, learning to commit to something and put down roots is just as important today as it's ever been. Every follower of Jesus needs people in their lives who they are committed to and who are committed to them. How else can we really know each other without putting down some relational roots? The Bible calls us to commit to a group of people who are invested in our growth, and we are invested in their growth. And this takes time. See, many of us want to be invested in, but we don't want to commit to anything. If you feel like you're alone, if you feel like nobody really knows you, if you feel like your spiritual life is stagnant and only relegated to two hours on a Sunday, you need to go deeper in community. To have a people who really know you. To know your struggles, know your temptations, are in your life praying for you, lifting you up when you're weak, pointing you to Jesus, celebrating your wins, and lamenting your losses. But it's going to require commitment to those relationships. Jesus isn't only the head of the church. He comes to us with a body. And a a just Jesus and me approach to discipleship disembodies the full Christ. Being fully committed to Jesus means being fully committed to the body he bled for. Church, God has provided everything we need to live wholeheartedly to him. He wants our whole heart, our entire life, everything we are. He wants us to hold nothing back from him. See, in their weakness, Abraham and Sarah received what we all need, to know God more deeply a wholehearted way of living and relating 
to God, to be reaffirmed about the way he sees us. They needed a covenant community. God demands nothing of us that he hasn't already provided in Christ. And we have so much more clarity today than even Abraham had. We have the clarity of the cross, that Jesus experienced human weakness and fragility, even to the point of crucifixion, to show how far he was willing to go to be with us. Jesus lived wholeheartedly without failure, so that through faith, his righteousness would be our righteousness. The spotless one took all your spots, and the blameless one took all your blame. And he removed the sting of our greatest fear, death, when he rose from the dead. And so church, why would we hold anything back from a God who is willing to go that far for us? Give your whole heart to God. What are you holding back from God today? Why? What are you holding on to? What is God calling you today to let go of to receive something so much greater? In your weakness, God comes. And he comes with an invitation to take you somewhere in your life that you're not always willing to go but it's for your good and it's for his glory. And so whatever it is, whatever part of you that is hard for you to just let go of and surrender to Jesus and to invite him into, I want to call you this morning to trust him that God will be enough. He is El Shaddai. He's the all-sufficient one. And whatever it is that he calls you to give to him, you can know that he's going to redeem it. And he's going to turn it into something beautiful. Give yourself wholeheartedly to God. And give yourself to the church. We need you. And you need us. It's God's design. Community can be frustrating. You will be hurt in community, but you will also be healed in community. And you will know more of Jesus through the lives of other people who are walking this journey alongside of you. You simply cannot practice the way of Jesus on your own, and it's worth it. Whatever it is that God is calling us to surrender to him, whatever fears that we are being called to let go of, it's worth it. We can trust God in the process. God is taking you somewhere, and it's for his glory and your good. Let's pray. Father, we all come into this place carrying different weights. God, many of us find ourselves in the place that Abram and Sarah were at. 
They'd been waiting for a long time. They were weary. They were discouraged. They were disappointed with their own performance. But it's in that state of weakness, God, that you showed up. God, I pray for all of us in this room today that we would begin to reshape the way that we view our own weakness. That we would be able, like Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians, to embrace our weakness as a gift. That it's in our weakness that you show your power through us. And God, you desire to do that. God, there is so much more that you want to do in us and through us. And I pray that any person in this room today who is struggling right now, that they would just hear the voice of your spirit saying to them that you are not done with them, that you have not given up on them and you never will. And I pray, God, that we would just trust you and be able to invite you into even the darkest parts of our heart. The parts we are most ashamed of, the parts we are most afraid of being found out. God, it's in our weakness that you show your power and your strength and your desire to rescue and redeem. And so God, I pray that we would just respond to your spirit this morning. And that we would be willing to come to you with open hands in our brokenness and in our weakness. And just ask you to come and to have your way. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would have your way among us. In Jesus' name, amen.